Did you know that most vitamin D3 supplements come from sheep's wool? Ew, seriously. They squeeze the grease out of the wool and process it with chemicals, and then you eat it. I'm Kat, mother of three and founder of Ritual, the company making traceability the new standard in the supplement industry. When I was pregnant, I got rid of products I didn't want anywhere near my body. I found that many multivitamins contained high amounts of heavy metals, synthetic colorants, and even lacked some of the nutrients we actually needed. So what did I do? At four months pregnant, I quit my job and started Ritual because all women deserve to know what they're putting in their bodies and why. Ritual's products are made traceable, meaning we share the science and sourcing for every single ingredient. For example, our vegan vitamin D3 comes from sustainably harvested lichen in Nottingham, England, not sheep. We trace like a mother because, let's be honest, no one cares quite like a mother. See for yourself with 25% off at ritual.com slash podcast. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. It's Friday, October 28th, 2022. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, we're doing something a little different. So, this show recently hit the very spooky milestone of 666 episodes. Apart from being a totally gobsmacking indicator of the passage of time, that means we've got a pretty enormous backlog. And I know from messages that I get from some of you that you listen to old episodes every now and then, or have started the show at the very beginning and are working your way up. But for those of you who joined more recently, or have listened every day for years, but like me, tend to forget episodes pretty quickly after they air, I thought that I would re-air some of my favorite segments from The Vault. The history of Halloween, if you haven't picked up on it, is one of my favorite topics. So, of course, I have written a lot about it on this show. And given that it is Halloween weekend, I wanted to share a few of my favorite segments that I've done over the last two and a half years on Halloween history. So first, from 2021, we've got the history of candy corn. How did this contentious candy come to be? Why does it persist when so many people hate it? And does it really contain bug secretions? Plus, a segment from 2020. Were witches back in the day really mixing tongues and eyeballs into their brews? Here's what ingredients like Eye of Newts actually meant. And finally, from last year, a survey of witchy and chilling music, from psychedelic countercultural witch music in the 1960s to more recent tracks that have been scientifically proven to make your spine tingle. Here's some cool stuff from the archives for your ride home. So maybe you've seen online, or possibly even in real life, at the grocery store, Brock's, the top purveyor of candy corn in the U.S., has released a 
turkey dinner blend of candy corn. Looks like something out of a retro-futurist menu for the 21st century. Now, this is their second year getting in on the Thanksgiving market. Last year, they released a bag that had candy corns colored and flavored like roasted turkey, green beans, cranberry sauce, stuffing, glazed carrots, and sweet potato pie. This year, the carrots and sweet potato pie have been replaced with coffee and apple pie. Now, if part of your reaction, after fascination and maybe disgust, was that Brock's needs to stay in their lane, they've got the Halloween market, stop trying to branch out to other holidays, well, then you may be intrigued to discover that candy corn was not originally a candy made exclusively for or sold just during Halloween. In fact, it wasn't originally called candy corn at all. The exact origins are murky, but the candy is usually thought to have been invented by George Renninger of the Philadelphia-based Wonderly Candy Company, probably sometime in the 1880s. In 1898, his recipe started being produced by the Golitz Confectionery Company, which would later become the much more well-known to us, Jelly Belly. And back then, it was called Chicken Feed. That's right, candy corn was originally called chicken feed, sometimes even had a rooster on the front of the box. Pretty strong argument for anyone who says candy corn barely tastes like human food, let alone a delicious candy. Quoting National Geographic, As chicken feed, candy corn was intended to appeal to Americans' largely agricultural roots. At the turn of the 20th century, the country was still largely rural, and about half the nation's labor force lived on farms. Confectioners, hoping to tie in the farm and harvest spirit, also turned out candy pumpkins, turnips, chestnuts, and clover leaves. The original candy corn was touted as a treat to be eaten all year round. End quote. And one important thing to point out here, too, is that while variations on trick-or-treating have happened across cultures for centuries, we didn't have trick-or-treating as we recognize it today. Children going door-to-door in costume asking for candy and not seriously threatening any consequences if they don't get it until after World War II and for which you can largely thank Huey, Dewey, and Louie's 1952 trick-or-treat special with Donald Duck. Yes, it truly is Disney's world, we're just living in it. But in the first half of the 20th century, kids' adventures on All Hallows' Eve were much more mischievous. Think the Halloween scene in Meet Me in St. Louis. And even when it wasn't, homemade snacks were more common offerings than candy. Also, in an interesting throwback to the turkey dinner candy corn, in at least New York City, between the wars, costumed trick-or-treating of a sort happened on Thanksgiving, not on Halloween. But anyways, yes, candy corn, or excuse me, chicken feed, was a popular treat year-round. Now, why was it so popular? I mean, it can't just have been the clever marketing to agricultural families— Samira Kawash, author of Candy, A Century of Panic and Pleasure, wrote in The Atlantic in 2010, quote, The real innovation in candy corn was the layering of three colors. This made it taxing to produce. All those colors had to be layered by hand in those days. But the bright, layered colors also made the candy novel and visually exciting, end quote. Visually exciting, yes, but as Kawash says, a huge effort to make. Here's how the process worked, quoting from the National Confectioners Association. 
In the 1900s, many men needed to work together to produce candy corn. Sugar, corn syrup, and other ingredients were cooked into a slurry in large kettles. Fondant and marshmallow were added to give a smooth texture and bite, and 45 pounds of warm candy was poured into buckets called runners. Men, called stringers, walked backwards, pouring the candy into cornstarch trays imprinted with the kernel shape. It took three passes to make the white, yellow, and orange colors. Originally, it was delivered by wagon in wooden boxes, tubs, and cartons. The process of making candy corn is very similar today, but now machines do much of the work. Manufacturers use a cornstarch molding process in which kernel-shaped depressions are made in a tray of cornstarch. Candy corn is made from tip to tip in three color passes. First, the depression is filled with partially set white candy, known as mellow cream. Next, the orange mellow cream is added. The mold is then finished by adding the yellow mellow cream, and the entire candy is cooled. After it's finished cooling, the tray are emptied and a confectioner's glaze is added to make the kernels a little shiny. At last, the little candy corns are ready to be eaten. End quote. And if you want to see the process in action, I put a link in the show notes to an old 2008 Food Network special showing the making of candy corn. But on that confectioner's glaze, you may have heard before that confectioner's glaze is made from bug secretions, which is true. It's technically just shellac, the same thing used to varnish furniture, only in very small amounts. Quoting McGill University, This varnish, or shellac, is the resinous exudate produced by the female Indian lac bug, an insect that spends its whole life attached to a tree, sucking its sap and converting it into the familiar sticky substance that has long been used to provide a glossy protective coating on wood. It takes about 100,000 insects to produce a pound of red-tinged resin. End quote. And that resin is coating your candy corn. But not just your candy corn. Also, jelly beans, chocolate mints, all kinds of candies, and even some ice cream cones and pills. It's everywhere. And while scarebait headlines every year like to warn about the horrors of bug secretions and Halloween candy, there's never been an actual cause for concern. It's recognized as safe by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, although it's not vegan, since, you know, it's technically an animal product. So look out for confectioner's sugar as an ingredient if you're sticking to a plant-based diet. But speaking of plant-based diets, back to corn. Quoting from Kawash in the Atlantic, the thing is, corn wasn't something Americans ate much of before World War I. There were no sweet hybrids in those days. Corn was coarse and cheap and not very tasty. Good for pigs and chickens. It wasn't until wartime wheat shortages in 1917 that any but the poorest Americans would have considered corn flour, corn meal, or cornbread acceptable foodstuffs. Candy corn, on the other hand, quickly became one of America's favorite treats. End quote. Kawash also pulled some print advertisements from the 50s describing candy corn as a summertime candy, or in another as the candy all children love to nibble on all year long. So when did it go from being a penny candy favorite and staple made by all candy companies shared during all holidays to a flagship product for Halloween produced by only two national companies? Kawash says it began in the 50s. 
Candy corn, with its colors and corn shape evocative of the fall harvest, did always have strong autumnal undertones. Combined with the lifting of wartime sugar rationing increasing all candy production, and companies starting to offer trick-or-treat-sized products, and the low cost of candy corn specifically, all Jelly Belly had to do was fan the already growing flame for candy corn. They increased their advertising during October by a huge amount, and, well, as marketers do, we shall follow. People from there just started associating candy corn more and more with the season and with Halloween, and we've never really gone back from there. Except for attempts from Brock's and Jelly Belly to create seasonal versions of the treat, except unlike how in the early 1900s it would have been the same product marketed differently, now they make completely different products. Still candy corn, but in pastels for Easter, red and green for Christmas, and pink for Valentine's Day, and yes, Thanksgiving dinner. Unless you think no one is actually buying candy corn these days, according to the National Confectioners Association, over 35 million pounds, or 9 billion kernels, worth of candy corn are produced every single year. And if after all of that, you're thinking you maybe want to give candy corn a try, despite having never enjoyed it in recent memory, here are a couple of tips from Lifehacker. First, most candy corn aficionados seem to swear by Brock's over Jelly Belly. Apparently, they add salt to the recipe, and it really helps the overall flavor profile. You can also try mixing the candy corn with salted or honey-roasted peanuts. This seems to be a southern tradition, maybe started in Virginia, and lots of candy corn haters have been converted by pairing them with salted peanuts. Some say that it tastes kind of like a Butterfingers. So give it a shot if you want, or you can continue thinking of candy corn as, as Kate Wilski described it in Eater, the Nickelback of Halloween. Eye of newt and toe of frog, wool of bat and tongue of dog. Whether you're reading Macbeth or simply browsing a store or bar's fall-themed lineup, or maybe your friends are trying to write a Halloween parody of WAP like mine were last night, either way, you've likely come across some of these witchy ingredients pretty regularly throughout your life. But what do they actually mean? Well, for the most part, despite how witches and brood potions occasionally get portrayed, these ingredients aren't actually literal interpretations. Tongue of dog does not mean actually cutting out the tongue of a dog. The hair as yellow as corn in Into the Woods, if made by an actual witch or apothecary, probably would not have meant blonde human hair, but rather a certain type of herb. Quoting Dave's Garden, Throughout history, commonly used plants and herbs have been given different names based on certain attributes of the plant, its growth habits, or even specific reasons it was used. Common dandelion has been called bitterwort for its strong and bitter taste, blowball and puffball because of its seeding habits, lion's tooth for its deeply serrated foliage, and piss in the bed because of its diuretic properties, end quote. We still refer to individual plants by many different names, their scientific name, which can sometimes differ or change over time, as well as a slew of different informal names, which vary across but even within cultures. But back in the day, say throughout the Middle Ages or in the Elizabethan era when Shakespeare would have been penning the blank verse for the Weird Sisters, the recipes for various tonics and remedies were closely guarded secrets, passed down through the generations and rarely ever written down. 
So not only might the names change a bit over time due to there not being an official written record, but the names were also meant to be a bit obscure or misleading so as to deter copycats. Quoting again, Back in Shakespearean times, those who were labeled as witches were usually herbalists, midwives, and healers. Their livelihood often depended on their knowledge of herbs and their uses. Therefore, they created secret code names for the plants they used. In some cases, certain body parts were used as code for the part of the plant used in a spell or herbal remedy. For example, eye of would usually refer to a round-shaped blossom or seed of a specific plant, as in eye of newt, which is simply a mustard seed. In some cases, an animal name was used in place of a plant name, just like the newt would represent the mustard plant in eye of newt. End quote. And some other common codes... Heart usually meant a bud or seed. Tongue or teeth was usually a leaf or petal. And dog was usually a type of grass, specifically couch grass. So tongue of dog would mean the leafy part of grass, like a blade of grass. Hair meant dried herbs or the stringy parts of herbs. Blood was just sap. Paw, foot, leg, wing, or toe usually meant leaf although tail meant stem and head meant blossom. Toads were typically wild sage, cats were cat mint, frogs were sinkfoil flowers, and rat was valerian root. Those, of course, changed from place to place, so they aren't hard and fast translations. Some also pulled from gods and mythology, but you get the picture. In addition to preventing people from knowing the true ingredients of whatever remedy they were making, the obscure and kind of gross-sounding ingredients would actually make customers more likely to believe that they had found the one true cure for their ailment, as opposed to thinking that they were basically drinking a tea they could have made in their garden themselves. So now when you hear the potion ingredients in Macbeth, quote, Filet of fenny snake in the cauldron boil and bake, eye of newt and toe of frog, wool of bat and tongue of dog, adder's fork and blind worm's sting, lizard's leg and owlet's wing, for a charm of powerful trouble, like a hell broth boil and bubble. You know now, they're really just talking about mustard seeds, sinkfoil petals, a bit of grass, and some moss. Not quite as spooky as it seems. There's a line in the TV show Parks and Recreation when the archetypal cynical hipster intern April Ludgate claims that the only music she listens to is German death reggae and Halloween sound effect records from the 1950s, and Bette Midler. The joke works because it's so ridiculous, but I am alarmed to report that I am quickly becoming someone who listens predominantly to Halloween sound effect records from the 1950s. I go a bit more broad throughout the 20th century, and alright, it's not all just sound effects, but all of the vintage songs and records are heavy on the sound effects. You'd be surprised how many videos there are on YouTube in which people have compiled Halloween songs from various eras going all the way back to the 1910s. And then, of course, when Kraft Recordings released a bright orange pumpkin-shaped vinyl record of the soundtrack to It's the Great Pumpkin, Charlie Brown, you know I had to get it. And turns out a lot of the soundtrack is just ambient banging and whooshing and howling noises, which honestly, I dig. 
The Great Pumpkin cartoon came out in 1966, right at the height of a kind of witchy resurgence in America, not too unlike the one we're seeing again now, or the one around the turn of the 20th century when a lot of those spooky tunes I've been listening to got written. The one in the 1960s, though, went fairly hand-in-hand with the psychedelic counterculture movement and the growth of the music recording industry, which meant an explosion of supernatural elements in mainstream music, as well as an opportunity for smaller, supernaturally-focused artists to make their mark. Atlas Obscura took a look back at some of the era's highlights in an article a few years back. There was, of course, Vincent Price, the king of horror films and, to some, the veritable voice of Halloween— In addition to his slate of starring roles in classics like House of Wax, The Fly, and The Last Man on Earth, not to mention voicing the spine-tingling monologue in Michael Jackson's Thriller, Price put out a 1969 double album called Witchcraft and Magic, Adventures in Demonology. It's a light-hearted play on an instruction manual about how to perform magic, dotted with joking asides by Price, quotes from Macbeth screeched by actresses, and a slew of sound effects to set the scene, making it feel like you're there in a dungeon with Price. Mm, let me see. Now, you have your implements, and you have your magic circle. Good. Shall we proceed? But remember that magic is not for the faint-hearted. You can't be too careful when dealing with demons. And you wouldn't want to spend eternity in the fires of hell now, would you? (laughs) So hard. You stand there in your row. For all of the fun on Price's album, it was very much a performance, storytelling. And not super scary fright fests were popular at the time. The Munsters TV show, first of all, existed alongside Bewitched and The Addams Family, which all debuted in 1964. But the Munsters also put out two albums in the 60s that followed the same sound effects heavy radio play style of Price's Witchcraft and Magic. And the weirder of those two, by the way, called At Home with the Munsters, is being re-released as a Black Friday slash Record Store Day special this year. Link in the show notes in case anyone listening is even marginally as stoked about that as I am. But for how in vogue domestic sitcom monsters were at the time, there were other, more niche communities taking the dark arts incredibly seriously. Louise Hubner's Seduction Through Witchcraft album is a synthesizer-heavy walk through all the basics of love spells and rituals. Quoting Atlas Obscura, A psychic, palm reader, and astrologer since childhood, Hubner had written several books on the occult and had a regular public presence in Los Angeles media, appearing frequently on radio and TV in her capacity as a practitioner of the esoteric arts. In her 30s, when she recorded the album, she cut a rather elegant figure with lush brunette waves and dramatically arched eyebrows, adding to her glamorous, sexy, hippie witch look. End quote. Are you afraid? So are a lot of other people. One of the reasons witchcraft has survived through the ages is because man's need to coerce destiny and subdue the fear within has never subsided. Witchcraft attempts to deceive, cajole, and otherwise disturb natural inclination and occurrences. Witches know about the universal energy of which all things are part. 
The year before the album was released, Hubner had even been appointed official witch of Los Angeles County at the Hollywood Bowl. Her husky, sensual tones and track titles like Orgies, a Tool of Witchcraft, were very much in line with certain parts of counterculture at the time. As Atlas Obscura put it, the would-be hippies were game with pretty much anything that bucked against the strict societal regimes of the 50s, whether that came in the form of non-Western spirituality, psychedelic drugs, astrology, communal living, open marriages, or anything else, it was all fair game. And the general vibes of witchcraft, flowing hair and clothing, symbology, the outcast nature of witches, being anti-establishment, the connection with nature, it all meshed well with the hippie trends at the time. But there was another album that came out in 1971 that was neither mainstream performance like Price nor sensual immersion like Hubner, but was more matter-of-fact instructional. Also backed by a lot of experimental synth tones, The Hour of the Witch by Gundela the Green Witch, which, by the way, was re-released on bright ectoplasm green vinyl a few years ago, teaches listeners how to perform basic love spells. But rather than ensnaring us like a siren, Gundela offers encouraging advice like anyone can be a witch if you decide to be and that the real magic is inside of you. You know, the candles, the incense, the potions, the eggs, the herbs, these things have no magic. They aren't magical in any way. The magic, the power, is all within you. But these things are important. I love Gundela because it turns out, apart from being a witch, she was just an ordinary school teacher and mother from Michigan who threw elaborate themed parties but never served alcohol. Quoting again from Atlas Obscura, The Hour of the Witch isn't sexy or dramatic or space-age hip. It's simply a no-nonsense guide to spellcasting, dictated in the sort of brisk, patient, authoritative voice one might also trust for advice on how to plant tulips or breed spaniels. Giving directions on how to strain a potion, she suggests using cheesecloth or perhaps one of those new disposable coffee filters. It's easy to imagine her maybe wearing the flowered muumuu she sports on the album cover in front of the camera for the Food Network, or a more eldritch version thereof, pleasantly shepherding novice magicians through a recipe. If you don't have fresh eye of newt, she might have said, canned or frozen is fine. End quote. Gundela's album, as well as Price's, Hubner's, and many others from the era, would make great background tunes for haunted houses or tucked away corners of a party. But if you'd rather some more typical music to set the mood for this final week before Halloween, or any time as we ford through the dark winter, Quartz recently put together a playlist of over 700 songs that have been proven by researchers in London to give people the chills. The cause of music giving the listener a feeling of a tingle going down their spine, or perhaps even goosebumps, is something that various scientists have apparently been studying for quite a few years now. And according to Quartz, quote, One prominent assertion is that as we listen to music, our minds are racing ahead to imagine what's coming, and we get chills when our predictions are completely off. Perhaps the dynamic changes unexpectedly, or a surprising instrument slides into the mix. Another possibility is that people who get chills have more connections between the auditory and reward systems in the brain. Still, other scientists have proposed that people who are more empathetic are more prone to experience chills because of emotional contagion, end quote. 
The newer research from over the summer adds to the hypothesis that most chills-causing songs are sad ones. But more notably, this was one of the few studies that actually ran experiments on participants instead of just being theoretical. And from those experiments, they found that chill-inducing songs tended to be slower and more instrumental, often relaxing, non-danceable, non-electric. Some standout tracks include Prince's Purple Rain, Whitney Houston's I Will Always Love You, Death Cab for Cuties' Someday You Will Be Loved, Enya's Only Time, several versions of Leonard Cohen's Hallelujah, and a lot of classical music, including several songs that are included on a compilation called Classical Halloween. Chords compiled all 715 songs into a Spotify playlist if you want a chilling playlist to listen to. And the spine-tingling feeling is not universal, like I said. It's kind of like ASMR. You know, some people really feel it for certain things and not for others, and some people not at all. The researchers also note that sometimes the chilling effect happens because of an emotional connection a listener has made with a song, not because of the actual sounds. Still, for how disparate some of the song choices kind of seem on this playlist, they do all kind of go together, especially if you were looking for six days worth of sad boy music. Link for your lugubrious listening is in the show notes. Well, that is going to be it from Past Me. I hope you've enjoyed this little blast from the past. Links to the full episodes from each of these as well as their original sources are in the show notes. And for anyone who celebrates, I hope you have a fun, spooky, and safe Halloween this weekend. This show was produced by Ride Home Media. I'm Jackson Bird, and I will talk to you again on actual Halloween on Monday. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.